Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. Great. Well, um, hello. Let's go ahead and get started. My name is Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, where we're devoted to closing gender gaps in political and economic participation, health, and education. Very ambitious. <laughs> um, I look to Victoria, who's leading us toward that aim. Um, I'm delighted to have uh, to get to introduce uh, today's speaker, um, uh, Ankita. Um, Patnick, the Nate, or oh, okay. that's right. Yeah, okay, good. Um, I meant to, I was so interested in her ideas, I forgot to ask the pronunciation of her name. <laughs> um, so, um, Ankita is a researcher now with um, Mathematica Policy Research in DC. She's a recent graduate of um, Cornell University's economics department. She's uh, she's a kind of labor economist focusing on gender. Her work, she's very interested in. Um, uh, gender and women in work, but also, um, like many of the most um, influential young scholars um, today looking at gender and work, she's really interested in fathers, um, making sure that we don't broaden the lens and just uh, that gender isn't just women. Um, and so we are really thrilled to hear your research and to engage uh, us in a conversation. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks very much. Um, thanks for inviting me to be part of this seminar series. Very exciting. Um, before I jump into the talk, I wanted to quickly say, um, as Hannah mentioned, I'm an economist by training, so we have a certain way of approaching things. Um, if at any point during this talk uh, I am speaking like what sounds like total gibberish to you guys, um, please put your hand up. I'm happy to pause, clarify. Um, I'm also really interested in hearing sort of if, if you come at parent to leave or follow her from a different perspective uh, um, if you've been you know trained in a different field so please jump in with all your comments um, you don't have to wait until the end of the talk okay so I'm excited to present work from this project that I've been doing that looks at um, sex specialization within the household through the lens of parental leave specifically paternity leave actually so let me start by motivating the talk a little bit We've seen very promising trends with regard to uh, reduced gender differences in market work in recent decades. So women's rates of college attendance have risen dramatically over the last 100 years. Um, the gender gap in market wages has reduced dramatically. It used to be about 67 cents to the male dollar in 1980. It's now about 84 cents to the dollar. If you're a very young woman between the ages of 25 to 34, um, at the start of your working career, that gender gap is even smaller. It's about 93 cents to the dollar. Um, so we've really seen that in the, in the formal labor market, men and women are starting to look more and more similar. However, a very large and persistent gap remains in the realm of care work. And I'm talking about non-market work that's done in the household. And we see this play out in various realms. So the first is that of parental leave, uh, which I focus on in this talk. So new mothers are not only much more likely to take leave than new fathers, but they take much longer periods of leave um, than fathers, which has the potential to hurt their careers. Um, we see this in home production. So uh, married women spend not only more hours in childcare and housework than do married men, but they do a different type of tasks. So women tend to do more time and flexible and routine chores compared to men. Um, a classic example of this is uh, that a typically male task is that of maintenance and repairs. So say mowing the lawn or fixing something that's gone wrong in the roof. Um, now, obviously a, a very important contribution to the household, but you can imagine that uh, this doesn't need to be done every day, and it can be moved around. So you can move uh, mowing the lawn by three hours and you know, nothing goes horribly wrong. 
Um, in contrast, a typically female task is that of, say, cooking dinner, right? It needs to be done every day, so it's a routine task. It's done in pretty much the same ways. Um, it's also time inflexible, especially if you have young children. So it needs to be done at a certain time every day. Um, now, time and flexibility obviously poses conflict with paid work and with le leisure. So there's reasons that we care about the type of housework and childcare that men and women do. And lastly, we see uh, this female specialization in care work, generally in household priorities. Um, so as an example, uh, married women are more likely to move for their husband's careers than vice versa. Um, married women are also more likely to quit their jobs in response to their husbands working very long hours uh, rather than vice versa. So we've seen reduced gender differences uh, outside of the home in market work, but not so much inside of the home in care work. So why should we care about sex specialization, right? Um, there's a couple of different reasons concerning both equity and efficiency. The first is that female specialization in care work reduces the bargaining power of women. So your bargaining power, as studies have shown, is directly proportional to your contribution to the household income. Um, so obviously, uh, it reduces the sort of power that women have when they're negotiating decisions in the household. Um, Interdependence between this husband and wife uh, can become costly if you become divorced or widowed. So this is the classic displaced homemaker syndrome, where um, a woman who's been investing a lot in non-market caregiving skills um, has more difficulty supporting herself um, financially if she ever gets divorced or widowed. Um, there's also life cycle changes, um, so it might make sense when your children are very young, but if you consider it sort of over your life cycle, it might not be as optimal. Um, and lastly, and then this last point is really for the economists, uh, the, who often argue that sex specialization is just efficient, right? If couples have figured out that this is the way they want to do it, then there must be a reason for it. Let's sort of leave them alone. Um, and the, ar the, the efficiency argument was really made by Gary Becker, who's sort of the father of household economics. Uh, and the idea that he proposed was uh, that of comparative advantage in the household. So men had higher market wages on average, so they have sort of um, comparative advantage in market work. Women, he argued, had some biological advantages in caregiving, as an example, breastfeeding, um, which gives them a comparative advantage in caregiving. And so it just made sense that you know the husband and wife specialize in um, their respective roles. However, I'm going to argue that that uh, sorry efficiency can't be the only reason that we see these patterns of specialization. So as I just pointed out, we've seen all these reduced differences in market work, right? So the gender gap in wages has shrunk dramatically. Um, we've also seen technological advances that make biology less important. So the <coughs> advent of the breast pump, for example, means that you can continue breastfeeding uh, while still going back to work, say when the dad is on leave and feeds the baby. Mm -hmm. um, so all these reasons that men and women now look uh, much more similar, and yet we still see um, high levels of female specialization in care work. So this really suggests that sticky social norms about who should do what in the household is, is definitely pushing at least some of this specialization forward. Okay, so um, governments in various developed nations have been talking about paternity leave as a possible solution. So the rationale is that getting dads to take some leave um, helps women by enabling mothers to return to work earlier so their human capital depreciates uh, less. Um, in fact, having lots of men take paternity leave reduces statistical discrimination against women. Um, so what is statistical discrimination? It's when, uh, it's not discrimination because you just dislike someone or you just dislike women or you think there's like they're poor workers or something. It's the idea that you look at a woman and you calculate the probability that she's going to take some leave at some point and you kind of incorporate that into your decision of whether to hire her and how much to pay her. It's sort of not personal 
uh, discrimination, right? And so if men and women both become as likely to take some amount of leave, then employers have no rationale to, to discriminate solely against women. And lastly, it makes the initial parenting experience more similar, and that's really important, especially if it's your first child. Now, in the absence of paternity leave, women uh, taking long maternity leaves are essentially uh, investing a lot in their new parenting skills and somewhat, somewhat disinvesting from their market skills because your human capital depreciates if you're away for a very long period of time. Men, in contrast, stay at work. In fact, some studies show they strengthen their ties to their employer after the birth of a child, sort of really attaching themselves uh, more to the sort of family provider role. So we, we're seeing men and women you know, invest differentially in parenting versus market skills if men don't take leave. Okay, so this leads to um, research questions. Uh, the first of which is what kinds of schemes are successful in getting dads to take any leave at all? And, and why are they successful? Um, so that's more sort of a policy design question. And the second one is, um, is there any point to it? Which is that even if we get dads to take any leave, does this permanently improve the division of labor? Or are social norms so sticky that once both parents go back to work, they just revert to traditional gender roles anyway? So these are the two questions that I'm really going to be focus on, focusing on in this talk. Any questions so far? Okay. Sorry, did you have a question? Great. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so a quick overview for those of you who aren't, haven't been following the literature. So what do we already know about paternity leave? Um, the research and policy effectiveness shows that, firstly, Fathers take more leave in nations with better benefits and reserved daddy days, all right? So if you do a cross-country study, you find that um, countries that offer good compensation while you're on leave are more likely to have uh, high rates of paternity leave use. Um, countries that also offer daddy days, which means days that are reserved for dads, so you can't, um, you can't exchange them between husband and wife. Um, fathers are also more likely to take leave in those countries. Um, now, the problem with a cross-country study, while very informative, is that these just show associations, right? So um, there's, there's a possibility of selection bias. The kinds of countries that compensate you generously for taking leave are the kinds of countries that obviously have dads that, you know, care about gender equality or actually have voters that care about gender equality and dads taking leave. Um, so we're, we're really more interested in trying to find something causal. So there's a couple of causal studies. Um, we're not here. Um, that look at sort of a sudden change in national policy. So what happens when Sweden or Norway um, suddenly decided to introduce a daddy quota? And they do find that fathers respond very strongly to daddy quotas. So there is definitely a causal effect. Um, however, those studies aren't able to identify a causal mechanism. And the reason for that is, for example, in the case of Sweden, what they did was they took a month of leave away from moms and they gave that month of leave to dads. Okay. So it's great that dads responded, but um, it couldn't. It doesn't necessarily. It's not necessarily the daddy quota that's working. It might just be that families want to use all of their leave. Now the only way to do it is to have dad take leave. So, sorry. Can you define daddy quota? What yes. Mean by I'm that sorry. Term? So a daddy quota is. Um, it's a reservation of a period of leave just for fathers um, that that is non-transferable. So it's use it or lose it. If the dad doesn't use it, it just goes to waste. Um, now. To better understand, I think of a contrasting system, which exists in many countries, where you have some leave reserved just for moms, um, that, that is more sort of health related, so right after birth, and then you just have parental leave for the family. It's like six months, mom and dad can decide however they want to split it, they could do 50-50, mom takes it all, dad takes it all, 
Um, as you can imagine, fathers participating in the shared gender-neutral parental leave is very, the participation rates are very low, typically less than 20%. Um, so that's the contrasting system that you should think about when I talk about a daddy quota. A daddy quota is kind of like just the way that we give moms their individual entitlement to some leave, we're giving dads an individual entitlement to their own leave. Yes. Great. All right. Um, so, sorry. So, as I said, we aren't able to uh, detangle the causal mechanism because we see dads responding in Sweden and Norway, but it could just be the case that the family just wants to use up all the leave, and if those are the strings that are tied to the leave, then okay, dads will respond. Um, so, the daddy quotas are effective. We know that, but the question of why they're effective still remains. So, are the fathers responding to this label? Like, are we sort of psychologically kind of nudging them into taking leave by calling it daddy only, or are we just forcing their hand? So, that was about policy design. Um, what do we know about the long-term effects of paternity leave? Right? Is there any point in getting dads to take leave anyway? So, some studies show that the fathers who take leave are the same fathers who are more likely to do childcare in later months and years. Um, similarly, countries that have generous paternity leave also have um, sort of more equal sharing of childcare and housework. Um, th again, those are great findings. Um, we have the same problem of selection though. So the dads who are gonna take the longest leave obviously were very motivated to be great dads, right? Maybe they had a great dad themselves or were really bad them dad themselves, I'm not sure, um, but they, have in the, in the interest in being a good father and therefore um, they're going to take more leave and they're also going to uh, do more later on. The same with um, country policies. So again, we need some causal evidence, right? What happens if you shock dads into taking more leave? Um, do they suddenly do more housework and childcare? There, the evidence is really mixed. So we have a couple of studies that find very surprisingly no effect on the sharing of childcare. Um, one study found that they did laundry more equally, but nothing else. Um, um, we find negative or no effects on fathers' earning, and then we have every kind of effect on mothers' employment and earnings. You name it, you want a positive effect, I can cite a study. If you want a negative effect, I can cite a study. Um, now the problem, uh, I think, with, uh, basically you can explain why these uh, studies have failed to find a finding, by all kinds of data and methodology issues. It's, you know, you need sort of the ideal natural experiment to happen out there and it's hard to convince policymakers to uh, roll out policy in a way that's convenient for us researchers, right? Um, so one of the biggest problems with this kind of, uh, with these kinds of studies is the data. A lot of these studies were done with data that is survey-based that just asks um, families sort of who does more of the child work in your household and you, and then you give them four options. You say you, your spouse, uh, or you share equally. As you can imagine, there's all kinds of horrible reporting bias problems with these uh, studies, right? Dads will always respond that they do more stuff than they really do, you know. Um, I don't know, how do you guesstimate? My husband does 30% of the housework. Should I say I do it all? Should I say we do it equally? Um, so this, this precision issues, there's bias issues, um, all kinds of things like that. Another problem with these studies is that they all happen within one nation, so you only, uh, so you had the whole nation change its policy at one time. So you didn't really have an ideal comparison group in most of the cases. Just a quick clarification question. Yeah. So most of these daddy days, from what I know, are much shorter than the reserve maternity leave. Mm -hmm. So couldn't it also be something about the policy design itself if it's only like a day or two or two weeks um, that is reserved for dads compared to like 12 weeks? Um, so it's definitely not two or three days. So these studies were done in Sweden, Norway, and Germany, I believe, where the amount of daddy time ranges between one month to three months. Um, so I think it's a 
a fair enough amount of time that you should be able to detect some change. Um, I would understand if it wasn't like a, a huge change, but yeah, I think a month of that is probably enough. Um, two quick points. Yeah. One is I wondered if while you're talking about this, for the nations and studies which you have information cited, if you would share with us when it was that the leave could be taken or whether it had to be taken, because right. I think that the ordering as people restructure what their lives look like yeah. after childbearing, I think often we can end up with pattern effects. Yes. So I was interested in that. And then the second piece is somewhere in here, is there the terrific study that looked at when um, researchers and faculty at Princeton were given paternity leave, the men just wrote. Right. Yeah. They published more yeah. books, but they didn't increase in child care. Yeah. And whether, <laughs> oh. um, but it happens, but whether or not the time that men are on paternity leave can also mask other effects which which might be gained or lost from that because there isn't monitoring in essence of how the time is used. Right, um, so that's a good point. So because there's so many studies, yeah. at least three different countries, you get the whole spectrum in terms of how it needs to be ordered. Um, in some countries you can take the leave simultaneously, so husbands and wives can take the leave at the same time, um, which is what happened at Princeton. So the, the men, were in their offices working, or in their home offices working on their papers because their wives were also on leave. Um, but in some countries, you cannot take it simultaneously. So um, you might have some overlap period, like two weeks, where you can hand it off to the dad, um, but after that, he's on his own. Um, so that's one way of ensuring that, I had a question about this earlier, that's one way of ensuring that fathers are actually the primary caregivers um, when they're at home. As far as the timing of the leave, um, I'm not sure there was any restriction as to when the dads have to take it. Um, yeah, as far as I know, there are no restrictions on when the dad has to take it. I think the patterns that tend to appear are that the dads take some of it right at the beginning, so to help while mom is physically recovering from childbirth, um, and then sort of right at the end, when women go back to work and then dads are the primary caregivers. Um, I guess I have this... Um picture that like, I'm also I'm Swedish and I think that most dads actually take their weeks during the summer so they just add up a, a couple of vacation weeks basically mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is that also sort of a I've heard of that stereotype is that uh, yeah when when you're allowed to take the leave simultaneously uh, you just the family goes on vacation or better still you pack the kids off to the grandparents and go on a second honeymoon um, I've, I've definitely heard that but, but I don't think that they're allowed to take it simultaneously though. oh they're not allowed to take no, it simultaneously I don't think okay. so but I, they just take it during you know the summer just have one week after sure. vacation I even heard uh I heard the story from someone that they take it during, like, not in Sweden, but somewhere that they take it during football season or during the World Cup. <laughs> like, Ger in Germany, the dads took more leave when the World Cup was yeah. playing one year. Yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that might be the reason that we don't see any effects. Um, it's possible. Okay. So, what does is, what is my project do? Um, I look at a Canadian policy episode. And the reason that... Um, I picked this uh, particular context was that it methodologically gives me an advantage. And the reason is only one province in Canada changed its policy during this time. So I get to hold all the other provinces in Canada constant as a comparison group. So in the year 2006, just the province of Quebec left the national system of parental leave benefits that, that everyone else in Canada uses, and it set up its own parental insurance program. It's called the Quebec Parental Insurance Plan. Uh, well, it's actually called something very fancy in French, but I, I'm just gonna call it this. Uh, and in fact, I'll call it QPIP for the rest of the talk. 
Um, and the main differences in this new program were that it made it easier for parents to qualify for benefits, um, the financial compensation was improved, and critically, they introduced a new daddy-only quota of five weeks. So previously, you had mommy-only leave and you had shared gender-neutral leave. The rest of Canada still only has those things. But in Quebec, you have five weeks that only dads can access in a, on a use-it-or-lose-it basis. Um, so I used this, out, this uh, context, basically, to examine several things. So what was the impact on mothers and fathers' leave participation? So are they more likely to take leave? How long do they take leave for under the new program? Why, if at all, these daddy quotas might be effective? Um, and lastly, I look at the long-term effects on the household division of labor. Um, hopefully I have time to get, to get through all of this stuff. Okay, so um, the background to the Cupid reform. So in July 2005, it was announced that Quebec would be leaving the National Employment Insurance Program and establishing its own system. And the reason I mentioned uh, that it's July 2005 is because my identification method makes it critical that people could not have timed their births to be under the new program, right? So if you hear about it in July 2005, um, there's no possible way that you could purposely get pregnant in time to be under the new program on January 1st, 2006. So that's, that's critical for the way that I um, sort of examine this. So uh, the Cupid program came into place on January the 1st, and as I said, uh, it was really designed to battle the most common barriers to parents taking leave. Um, it really focused on dads and low-income women. Those were sort of the two target groups. So the common barriers. The first one is the obvious one. You're just ineligible for parental leave because you don't meet the qualifying criteria. And so Cupid made that much easier. The second one, and this is really important for fathers, actually, uh, financial compensation is the number one reason that dads don't take leave. So dads tend to be the higher-earning spouse. It's just too much of a hit to the household income to take unpaid or, or really low-paid parental leave. Um, so they improve the financial compensation. And lastly, gendered attitudes. So um, this is gendered attitudes from your, from your boss, from your coworkers, possibly even from your wife who doesn't want to share leave uh, with you. Uh, all of that is battled by giving dads their own entitlement to parental leave. Okay, so these are um, the two programs. The employment insurance right here is the one that uh, is the old program and the one that Canada, the rest of Canada continues to use. The one on the right is the CUPA basic plan. So the eligibility, as you can see, was made much easier. So previously you had to have worked 600 hours of insurable employment. Now you just need to have uh, sort of paid a premium on $2,000 of earnings in the last year. I should mention, sorry, this whole system works out of Canada's uh, like unemployment program. So it works exactly like Social Security does in the US. There's a little tax that's taken off of everyone's paycheck. And then uh, if you get pregnant or you lose your job, you uh, make a claim with this uh, organization. The replacement rate used to be 55% of your paycheck you get back as benefits. Now it's 70% for the majority of your leave. So all, all mommy only, all daddy only leave is now 70%. The first seven weeks of the gender neutral leave is also 70%, and after that you start going back to the old rate. They also raise the cap on benefits, so as is common with, with lots of social security programs, there's a maximum amount of benefit that you can claim on. So uh, it used to be that if you made anything more than $39,000 a year, you could only claim benefits on the first $39,000 of earnings. Um, now they raise that cap up to $57,000 of earnings. They also changed the duration of leave. So as you can see, the total amount went up by exactly five weeks. So by exactly the paternity leave amount. <clears throat> okay, so let's think through what we expect to happen, right? So when you improve benefits, you've essentially reduced the opportunity cost of taking leave, right? And uh, you expect everyone who's, who has a reduced opportunity cost responds. Now it's important to remember that benefits went up for moms and dads. So 
regardless of gender, we expect parents to take more leave with better benefits. In fact, there's a reason we should think that mothers will respond more strongly. There's two reasons. So moms tend to be the lower earning spouse, which means that that earning ceiling that I was talking about is less likely to hit them than it is to hit their husbands. And the second, and this is really important, is that women have higher elasticities of labor supply, especially women with children. So their decisions to work or not tend to be more sensitive to the wages being offered. That means if you uh, increase their benefits, they're more likely to respond in terms of sensitivity um, than men are. Men's decision to work or not or how many hours to work tends to be less sensitive to uh, small changes in, in wages. So when it comes to just the money getting better, we expect the moms to actually respond more than the dads. All right, so why should a daddy quota matter? Okay. Um, as I said, you can imagine that the family just wants to maximize the time that it spends with the baby, so it'll always consume all of the leave that you give the family. So then if I add another five weeks and I make it daddy only, then this like hungry family is gonna consume the extra five weeks of leave as well, right? So that might be a reason that we see dads respond. However, this is not what was going on in Canada before the reform. This is what maternity leave in Canada looks like before the reform. These are the months of leave. So if you can see this, this is the maximum amount of paid leave that the family could get, right? The vast majority of mothers were taking less leave than the maximum amount, even as fathers weren't participating. 17% of fathers would take any leave at all, okay? Over 60% of mothers were taking 11 months or less of leave. That means these families were just leaving leave on the table and walking away. Right? These families were wasting leave. So actually what's really curious about Canada is that dads could apparently always have taken leave. There was always something there for them to consume. They just chose not to. Okay, The vast majority of families. So for the most families, this daddy quota didn't change a binding constraint. Okay? And what I mean by binding constraint is they weren't up, up against the max and then we loosened that maximum for them and gave them five extra weeks. There was always slack there that dads could have taken. We just added five more weeks to the slack. All right, so now why might a non-binding daddy quota matter? Apparently dads always had leave, they just didn't want to take it. Why would giving them five more weeks of leave make any difference? Because this leave is different. This leave is labeled as daddy only. This leave is sort of um, promoted in a public sphere as sort of intended at fathers. So you can imagine that parents don't just care about money when they take leave. There might be additional costs to taking leave. We can think of these costs as stigma costs. Okay. And these stigma costs can come from your employer, they can come from resentful co-workers, they can come uh, from weird looks at the playground when you're the only father there. Um, you can even think of it as a self-stigma. Maybe it doesn't align with your idea of what fathers should do. Now, a daddy-only label is a really public message that you know, we as a society really want fathers to spend time with their kids. Um, in its extreme form, you can almost see it as like a guilty message, mm -hmm. kind of like, the government is giving you all this money to stay at home with your baby. Why are you such a terrible person to not want to spend time with this cute bundle of joy? Um, either way, you can imagine that labeling it as daddy only sort of reduces the stigma cost for fathers. Right? So now, if the father's total cost, the stigma cost plus their monetary cost, falls more than mothers, who only experience a change in monetary cost, then you might expect dads to actually respond more to this program than moms do. So I call it a flypaper effect. Um, the idea of a flypaper effect is um, when you give a family five weeks and the, the five weeks really are spongible. They can be you know, swapped between husband and wife because if, if it's not binding, then giving an extra five weeks doesn't really matter, but it sticks to fathers just because you called it daddy only. 
That's why I call it a flypaper effect. So uh, if we find a flypaper effect, it would be, you know, if, if I see five daddy weeks sticking to the father, then um, that's evidence of sort of an intra-household flypaper effect. All right, so the data that I use on parents' leave behavior, Statistics Canada um, uh, uses the Employment Insurance Coverage Survey. It's a quarterly survey. It asks a bunch of people uh, who are likely to claim unemployment, disability, parental leave benefits, or any kind of social security benefits. Uh, naturally, as part of this, it targets mothers who have had a baby any time in the last year. Can I just ask you back one slide? Yeah. Just so these are alternative. Ex if you saw the effect, these are alternative interpretations. Is that of what you're what, saying? Sorry. Of of why you might if you if you get the a stronger effect mm -hmm. from fathers right. than mothers. So you get a main effect and then you get an interaction effect. Mm -hmm. If you saw that, these are possible alternative explanations or possible complementary or alternative explanations for why you might see that. You're, are you going to have measures to distinguish among these or these are just possible explanations? Uh, sorry, do you mean like between the different types of stigma like employers versus co-workers? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean are you trying to argue that you can distinguish <laughs> among these things? Like no, you I'm trying to argue that if you... These are reasons why you might see yes. an interaction effect by yeah. gender or parent exactly. for this. Okay. I'm trying to say um, this is a reason why if you give people five weeks when they already already had five weeks, they could mm -hmm. always say taking leave, you might still see you a response see just by calling it a label. Um, and I don't have the data to distinguish between whether it's the workplace or your or your personal preferences or what's yeah. changing. That would be very interesting. Um, so they mentioned it targets mothers who've had a baby recently. Um, the data is from 2002 to 2010. As a reminder, QPIP came into place in, in 2006, so I have a nice little four years before and after. And I have a little less than 10,000 moms. Um, I've restricted this to moms who are in a married or cohabitating relationship. Um, and this is because single mom, I mean, I'm looking in, into a household division of labor, so obviously it's, it's a moot point with single mothers. Okay, so the empirical method that I use is a regression discontinuity. Um, Basically, the way to think about it is the running variable is I'm looking at several months around the reform. I'm going to see if there's a big jump at the exact date of January 1st, 2006. So is there a big difference between behavior on December 31st, 2005, where you would not have been eligible for the new program, and January 1st, 2006, where you are eligible for the new program? Um, is there any jump that can't be explained by general trends in what's happening uh, in, in that year? So as compared to... Comparing Quebec as to other provinces, right? Yes, exactly. Um, because I have these other provinces that I can control for where nothing should have happened because if you had a baby on either of those dates, it's the same program. Okay, so why am I using an RD? It, it identifies the local mean impact, so it's very sharp to look at that exact date uh, as opposed to comparing month to month or 2006 versus 2005. Uh, this is where I was talking about you couldn't possibly have planned your baby to be born on December 31st versus 2005. Uh, and in case you're wondering, you could technically plan a C-section, etc. but I have checked against that. Uh, if you remove the three days around the reform, you still have uh, the same effect. So another nice thing about the RD is that if you want to challenge identification, so what you need to worry about with a, a policy intervention is always that something else might have happened. So they might have changed their public daycare system, which Quebec has an excellent public daycare system and other provinces don't. Um, but that would have had to happen on the exact same date uh, as QBIP in order for that to be driving my effect. Um, so that's another uh, good thing. And it's internally valid if basically the treatment and comparison groups, which means all the people in the bins after and all the people in the bins before are basically the same amount of educated, same amount of you know, uh, just as married, same age, et cetera. And I checked that and it looks uh, very similar. 
Okay, so this is what fathers and leave behavior looks like in uh, the time around the reform. Zero marks the date of the new reform. <coughs> now, hopefully it won't take much convincing to show you that there's a big jump in fathers' leave participation. This is just zero one, will you, did they take any leave? Are they planning to take any leave? So fathers' participation jumped by 53 percentage points on the date of the reform. That's huge. It's uh, coming off of a baseline of about 20% of dads taking leave. So that's like a 250% increase straight off the bat. Um, this is father's leave duration. Um, not quite as impressive because the scale is huge, um, but it's actually very, very significant. It's still yeah. an increase of three weeks. This is off a baseline of two weeks, so it's still about 1.5 times what dads would do beforehand. This is mom's behavior around the reform. Um, I'll, I'll show you the actual sort of RD figures in a second. It shows a jump, but then it comes back down really quickly. It doesn't seem statistically significant. What's your what's your uh, x-axis? Oh, sorry. These are the months. Uh, months. These are the yeah months weeks. around months. the reform. Months. Yeah. And this is mother's leave duration. It doesn't budge at all, um, which sort of makes sense because mo the amount of leave moms could take stayed exactly the same, right? They could take 50 weeks before and 50 weeks mm -hmm. after. Okay, so these are the sort of formal results. Um, they're just various different specifications of looking at the same thing. Um, let's focus on the, the simplest version. So this is the RD of Quebec. Dads are 53 percentage points more likely to take any leave on January 1st, 2006 versus December 31st, 2005. They take about three weeks more of leave um, off of a baseline of two weeks. Um, moms take more leave, but it, the statistical significance really depends on the method that I use. So it's kind of a, a shaky finding. Um, and mother's leave duration doesn't change at all. There's no significant effect. I'm really interested if the provinces and the communities that border Quebec and are in the same media market, if you saw any effect there to see if one can disaggregate whether it's the actual policy shift or whether the promotion of the policy shift by heralding and ringing the bell, mm -hmm. in essence the label, changed it, or whether um, you have a breakdown which looks at, because you already said that for a very significant number of the population, because all of the leave, which could have been taken by the male or the female, there was five weeks of availability left. Mm -hmm. Whether you saw with um, consistent or changed effect for um, segments of leave, i.e. people who took very little, right. we saw this change, people who took virtually all of it, where in essence there could have been pent-up demand you know, if the female wanted to use it all, do you cover any of that? Great question, yes. Because riveted. Yeah, great. Um, <laughs> yes, that looking at the different segments of the population is about three slides away, so I'll definitely get to that. Um, as, as to your question about the different provinces, that's, that's great. So let me start by saying this is the RD of the controlled provinces. Right. right? So you see absolutely no effect on right. anyone in any of the other provinces. Very reassuring. Um, as to bordering um, them, unfortunately, yeah. I don't have data by like postcode or right. region or anything. Um, I will say what I did was I looked at Ontario versus Quebec. Ontario is the biggest and right. most similar. And basically Ontario is driving this whole result because I've, the other provinces in Canada, some of them are really tiny. Um, so, you know, a big part of this is Ontario. The second thing I'll say is, though, I don't actually think that the media um, would have been just in Quebec. And the reason is there was a huge legal battle um, to get Quebec this program because the federal government of Canada sponsored the first 
I think five years or something. Everyone else in Canada was really peeved um, mm. that their tax dollars were going towards paying for this Quebec program. So um, it's actually been on the national stage mm -hmm. um, for a fairly long time. I mean, sure, promotional materials like flyers or something mm. might be more likely to be sort of physically linked to the geography of the border. Um, but did everyone know this yeah, was happening in right. Quebec? And everyone I think, knew. Yeah. Yeah. And I know there's also effects of how Canada feels about, the rest of Canada feels about Quebec anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, there's Very a political true. overlay ah, there, which I'm not sophisticated yeah. enough in Canadian politics and culture to understand how that might play out. No, Thank it's you. true. Um, I mean, you know, Quebec does this from time to time. It just, like, gets up and changes its program because <laughs> Quebec's in Quebec. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't hear you. Geographic? Demographic. Demographic. In what sense? Um, it, it, it says that, that you have more uh, a job you have jump in one state versus other you know, places. But you're looking at it only in terms of legal, you know, just the leave that they take. But every father is different from other father. They have babies, but uh, you know, different education, different background, different <coughs> socioeconomics, all can affect the decision Sure, no, that's great. That's what I mentioned when I said the RD is really great because it's internally valid if the treatment and comparison groups are the same because the idea is that I basically check, so all I'm doing is comparing January 1st, 2006 to December 31st, 2005 in a like technically sophisticated way, all right? Oh, but really I'm just comparing those two bins of births to see if there's something different. There's no reason that being that having a baby on January 1st, 2006 should particularly be more educated dads or more married dads or older dads or anything like that. And I check that. I mean, I'm happy to go to my appendix and show you the slides. And I'll, like, the, just because my, my ex-ante expectation was that there's no reason that they're going to be particularly different and the truth is that they're not very different. Um, so, I mean, within Quebec, one day to another day, the population doesn't change. The population of people having kids. Um, sure, you might see like a year later because this program is, is so generous that, you know, um, I don't know, people who weren't ready to have kids before now are ready to have kids or something like that. But that's the whole point that the sharp RD that just looks at one day to another day sort of prevents um, that concern. Yeah. Is there another question? I thought I saw a hand. No? All right. Okay. Um, but so sort of this kind of thing is more susceptible to that concern. Uh, this is an immense study of the years surrounding QBIP. Okay, I just wanted to show you that it wasn't just like, a, this is a cool new program and everyone responded and then interest died off over time. Um, it really stayed stable. This is father's leave participation rates in the years surrounding the reform. So like I said, it was like between 12% and 17, like 17-ish percent for a long time. I jumped up to 60 and it stayed uh, pretty much stable. It's gone up and down a little bit. There was a recession in those years. Um, but, you know, the elevation has sort of stayed up there. It, it's been very persistent. That's amazing, actually. It's totally Okay, so is there a flypaper effect, right? Um, did, the, did, did the five weeks stick to dads? So let's review the evidence. The first, fathers responded more strongly than mothers, okay, which we said would, would probably happen only if their total cost, so their stigma cost and their monetary cost, fell more than mothers. The second is, remember how I said dads used to take two weeks? It went up by exactly three weeks that adds up to five. Um, that is exactly the amount of leave that we allocated for dads, and that's exactly what the average father is taking in Quebec post-reform. So it seems pretty consistent with a five-paper effect. 
But to, just to check against this, I look at, um, as you suggested in your question, the various types of families that are responding, okay? Is it the families, those few families, I think it was like 40% of families who had a binding constraint? Is, it, is all the response coming from them? Probably not, because we saw a 53% increase. Um, but is it all coming from them, or is it coming from the middle of the distribution as well? Okay, so this looks kind of complicated, but what it is is basically right here is bins of father's leave duration, okay? Up here is bins of mother's leave duration. So any one cell is a combination that the family chooses that, all right? So as an example, this cell is a combination that the mom takes no leave and the dad takes no leave, all right? reform No, sorry, oh, these, these are program effects. Okay. Yeah, just, uh, one second. And so right here is the idea that the mom takes a whole year or more leave and the dad takes no leave, okay? So the, the, the cells are combinations of leave. The numbers inside the cells are the program effects that Cupid had. Yeah, but that's my point, that the, that the labels are before the, before the program, the pattern was that the father was taking no leave and the mother was taking no leave or the mother was, but then um, you're going to It's not necessarily it before up. the program. It's just the probability that you select into this group um, before or after. Oh, okay. I see. I, I see. Okay. You know what I mean? Okay. So, yep. sorry. It's a regression yep. where the so outcome... So, the probability that you will fall into one of these buckets... Exactly. ...after the exactly. After, after the, the reform. Entry. Exactly. Okay. Uniquely exactly. in Quebec, right? So, everything that you see in column five is very consistent with binding families changing their behavior, okay? So, when the mom takes the whole amount of leave, after Quebec, after Cupid, it's way less likely that the dad's going to take no leave because we give him an extra five weeks, right? Or we give the family an extra five weeks. It's more likely that dad takes something out of its quota and mom continues to use her, her year of leave. Okay, so that's just consistent with they only had a year, we gave them an extra five weeks and it came with strings attached, so now dads respond. However, what you see in columns four and columns three, that has nothing to do with the binding constraint, right? So for example, in column three, the mom is taking between six to nine months of leave. That means there's always been at least three months of leave that dad could take. In fact, probably between three and six months of leave that dad could take. For some reason, after the reform, dads are more likely to take leave, okay? And they're, and they're likely to take their one to five weeks of leave, okay? Same here. So when the mom takes 10 to 11 months of leave, there was always one or two months of leave that dad could have taken. But now, after the reform, it's less likely that they waste the leave. It's more likely that dad uses his quota. What's the time distribution? In what sense? What time period were you examining? In the oh, first the whole sample? The, like or you mean when are they taking the leave? They have to take the leave within the first 12 months. But are you looking at one year? Are you looking at five oh, years? Oh, I'm looking at four years across. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it would be great to do an RD, but if you split it up between these cells, they're just gonna, there's not going to be enough births in each cell. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, sorry, just to clarify, this is looking from one year to the next, not from one province to the other? So It's both. It's okay. controlling for pro it's controlling for I throw the provinces in there just to see what happened across the two thousands, right? Maybe that dads just became more interested in taking leave. But this is what happened uniquely in Quebec before and after two thousand six. So for the flagging car effect you're talking about, I just wanna be clear. Um, so that has to do with the label of the daddy quota, right? But didn't it also change from the compensation being fifty five to seventy percent? Mm-hmm to after, so how do you distinguish, is it just the label of factor, or is it the actually increase in compensation that occurred across the board for parental leave also? That's a good question. Um, so as I said before, when we see compensation change, we expect 
moms to actually respond more than dads. And in fact, we didn't see that much of a response. I found a shaky 17% increase. Okay, but so why would you expect moms going on the argument that since they're paid less, why would you expect there to be a greater effect with mothers? Because their opportunity, so if your benefits get better and your wages are low anyway, then it's even less expensive for you to take leave, right? Yes, but the societal effect also has costs, right? The stigma cost? Yeah, mm -hmm. monetary and others where for women, the the loss of women have societal penalty for not spending time with their children in a way that men have a lower societal penalty for not spending time with their children. Mm -hmm. So you're presuming that, I think that there's a real question on how we read that. I think that question, how we disentangle, whether it's the label effect or whether it's a monetary effect mm -hmm. is a really important question. I mean, so so my argument is twofold. The first is, as I, I, I had said to Hannah quietly, I wish they had done the intervention in two chunks. Because I yeah. wish we could have yeah, measured the absolutely. label, but of course they're making policy, they're not doing yeah. a study frame for us. I mean, so there's two things going on. So the first argument that I make is that um, the societal cost of, that moms face shouldn't have changed across this period, right? There's no reason that this program affected mother's stigma. Mm -hmm. um, so only their monetary costs changed. and. I, like I said, I mean, the argument that their opportunity cost changes more than dads. The second argument is, it's actually not in the paper anymore, it's in the appendix. I looked at um, heterogeneity by income. Mm. So poor moms versus richer moms, poor dads versus richer dads. And it's a very clear pattern that whatever little increase I saw from moms mm. is coming from poor moms. Mm. Okay, and that really makes sense because mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. their eligibility was better, they, their opportunity costs changed dramatically in comparison, nice. dads aren't responding as much, because the cap doesn't affect, I mean, the cap is, uh, you know, constrains them more. Dads was the exact opposite. So high income dads were driving almost all of this response. Um, and I define high income pretty loosely, like middle income, middle class and above. Um, and low income dads barely responded, depending, depending on the specification that I was using. So, yeah. So, so do you presume that low income dads barely responded because the loss of income would be a binding constraint for them? Um, it's hard to say that because it could also be, I mean, various studies show that more egalitarian norms are adopted by higher educated, higher income families first and then trickle down through society. So it could also just be sort of a, a white collar environment is more likely to have, you know, bosses that are sympathetic to you taking paternity leave and not being made fun of in the lunchroom and, and things like that. So that's hard to say. Mm. Uh, yeah. do, wh where does, um, how does the, how do, how do your cutoffs in terms of um, income or cl by class compared to um, the cutoff, the, the, sh the shift in the, the 37,000 versus the 50,000? Good idea. Um, sorry, good point. So I checked that because it's basically three chunks, right? There's the people who are below the last ceiling, there's right. the people who got caught in the in the two ceilings be between mm -hmm. and the highest ceiling. Right. Um, well, that's where you want to look, right? Yeah. And so moms respond in the way that exactly I expected, which is that the people in the middle respond the most because right. they mm -hmm. got a ceiling boost and a mm -hmm. rate boost. Um, then moms at the top responded the least, moms right at the bottom responded the most, um, sorry, responded the second most, uh, and dads just have a very clear linear pattern. It's just the high income dads that respond the most, and then it gets lower in the middle, and it's almost no response from those below the old cap. Yeah. Okay, so they The caps aren't very generous, to be fair, they're, right. no, it's $37,000 a year, it's not a lot of money. 
but you didn't in that gap between the 37 and the 57 you didn't see much movement for men no I saw movement for men but less than the ones above the highest cap okay so it doesn't make sense if they're um, just responding to the money <coughs> alright do we have any questions about that stuff before I how long does this talk go oh sorry to top of the hour you have a half now okay excellent um, any more questions about this before I move on to the long term stuff just one minor thing on this. It is kind of interesting if you think of it also in terms of savings, you know. So, um, I mean, they would have they, they would suffer this income loss, but they probably don't. They could probably also have greater savings. So it's less of a, I mean, it's a wealth decline yes. to do this, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily a cash flow problem for them yeah. to take this time. Yeah. All right. So, how might this increase in paternity leave affect sex specialization? Right. So, let's go back to a little bit of just thinking about this sort of theoretically. Okay. The first is that of productivity differentials. Oh my! I had an equation in there. It disappeared. Never mind. Um, okay. So, this idea that I was saying that it, it really matters about male versus female productivity in market work versus non-market work. Okay. Having dads take paternity leave increases their productivity in caregiving, right? Hopefully being on paternity leave makes you a better dad. You learn how to change diapers and, and get the milk warm just right and all that stuff. Possibly it reduces your productivity in market work. We don't know. Um, especially five weeks off is not a long period of time, but possibly um, it comes back to hurt you in the form of employer hostility or coworker hostility. For moms, uh, having dads take leave should hopefully let you get back to work earlier. So that should increase your productivity in market work um, and not affect your productivity in non-market work. Okay, so using the sort of comparative advantage argument, paternity leave basically reduces the difference in sort of relative productivities. So dads can get better at doing stuff at home and moms can get better uh, or uh, can go back to work earlier. <coughs> there might also be habit persistence in utility. And the idea of habit persistence is that you do something once and it makes you like it more. Or you do something once and it makes you dislike it less. Sorry, yeah. So you spend some time with your kid, you realize you actually really like spending time with your kid. and You carve out more and more time to spend with them. So that would explain why dads on paternity leave then spend more time with their kids afterwards because they realize it gives them more utility, right? Um, or dads on paternity leave do more dishes, which everyone hates doing dishes, uh, but you hate it a little bit less if you do dishes for five weeks straight or something like that, right? <laughs> I'm skeptical. I, I think you probably hate dishes more if you <laughs> did them for five weeks straight. All right, there's also costs of reversion. So say mom and dad took leave at the same time, which by the way in Quebec you can do, you can take leave simultaneously. So you set up a certain way of doing things, right? So um, dad is, mom's in charge of uh, making baby's food while dad is giving baby a bath. After you go back to work, it's just costly to learn how to do the other person's tasks. So we've essentially specialized within caregiving in our different roles. Right? So there's learning costs. Um, there's also utility costs. So women might enjoy the experience of being supported by their husbands while they go back to work. So um, you're just not going to go back to traditional gender roles. And lastly, um, it affects parents' identity formation, right? Especially if it's your first child, your whole notion of what it means to be a father is affected uh, by taking paternity. And this is all really well and good, but the question is, can a few weeks of leave, five weeks of leave, really change anything uh, for years afterward? 
Okay, so the data that I use in sex specialization, I have um, data from the General Social Survey of Canada. They do a time use round every five years. So I, unfortunately, they don't do it every year. So I have a year, which is 2005, right before Cupid, and a year, which is 2010, which is about three years after um, Cupid. Now, it's time diary data. What a time diary is, for those of you who are unfamiliar, it means if you're selected for the survey and you agree to do it, it means for one representative day, you write down what you're doing every seven minutes of the day. Okay? That sounds horrible, as you can imagine, <laughs> uh, which is why they have all kinds of sample size issues. So that is you know, one of the weaknesses here. It's not like I have 10,000 moms uh, who agreed to write down every seven minutes what they were doing. Um, but so you write down what your primary activity is, and you write down where you were doing it. So your location, where you were at home, where you at the park, where you at work, every seven minutes for 24 hours. I have approximately 1,600 fathers and uh, 1,900 mothers. Again, all of them are married and cohabitating. Another caveat is these are individuals, so they're not couples. I, I can't actually pair the men and women together. So I can only say sort of across Canada, this is what moms seem to be doing. Across Canada, this is what dads seem to be doing. I don't actually know that they're married to each other. Okay, so the method that I use, um, I'm going to focus on a difference in differences. So um, I kind of brushed over this earlier, but the idea is basically I look at the difference before and after. Um, 2006, uh, sorry, 2005 and 2010. Um, but there might just have been, well, there was stuff that just happened between 2006 and 2010, all kinds of technology and economic uh, issues. And so having other provinces in there should control for kind of the general things that happened in that time period. So I can uniquely look at what happened in Quebec specifically before and after. Okay, that's called difference in differences. So differences between provinces uh, worked into differences across time. All right, so I have a sample of parents whose youngest child is aged one to three years old. Um, you're exposed to, to Quebec only if I see you in Quebec in the post-reform period. Okay, so if I see you in 2005 in Quebec, you're not exposed. If I see you in another province at any time at all, you're not exposed. So you have to be in Quebec in a post-reform period. Okay. There's one problem though. Um, this is the main analysis, but a, a, a key concern is what if the because I only have two years. What if this difference in difference effect is being conflated with something else that's happening in Quebec between 2005 and 2010, right? Maybe Quebec fared uh, the recession much differently than other provinces did. Uh, maybe, or most definitely, Quebec is just Quebec, uh, and so it's different from, from everyone else. So how do I check against this? I include a, a placebo group of parents, all right? A placebo group uh, of parents who are just slightly too, whose children are slightly too old to have been born under Quebec. Let me, I'm going to take my time explaining this because it's a little complex. So now these are triple differences. It's across provinces and time, like I said before. But we also have another group, which is parents with really, really young children and parents with just slightly young children. Okay. Um, so now the whole group has kids between the ages of 1 to 8. All right. Now you're only exposed if I see you in Quebec, post-reform, and your child is under 3 years old. Because if I saw you in Quebec, in 2010, but your child is eight years old, that child was born before the reform, right? But say Quebec suffered the economy, you know, the economic recession worse, then there's no reason that the age of your child would you know, affect how you responded to the recession, right? Similarly, if you say that Quebec is just more gender egalitarian, which it is, that's true, but the age of your youngest child probably shouldn't affect how gender egalitarian you are beyond the effect of Cupid. Okay. Why do you say sample of parents from the youngest child one to eight versus four to eight? 
sorry, so this is the whole sample, not just the no, placebo the whole sample. sample. Not, not yeah, just the, not just okay. placebo, but, the but the but the placebos are forty. Yes. So okay. the key group is um, your kid is one to is aged one to three. You're in Quebec. You're in 2010. The placebo group is you're in Quebec. You're in 2010, but your kid is four to eight years old. All right. So um, basically, this is the this is the regression equation and the main analysis for double differences. I look at Quebec times post. So you're just in Quebec and you're in a post-reform period. The robustness check it's Quebec times post, and your kid is under three years old. All right. And for the sake of time, I'll only focus on uh, I'll only focus on coefficients where they're supported across specifications. All right. So the triple difference estimate has to be going in the same direction and statistically significant as the the main analysis coefficient. All right, to show you that the samples are the same, so there's, it's not that dads are just getting particularly older or um, they're more married people or the household size has grown or anything like that. Um, this is what various characteristics look like in the sample if I do the same triple differences. So age of fathers, age of their wives, whether they're Canadian born, uh, how young the youngest child is, whether they're legally married, which is not very common in Quebec because cohabitation is, is very, very common, household size, etc. There are almost no statistically significant differences. The only one that is statistically significant is that there are fewer Canadian-born fathers in Quebec in my key group um, than non-Canadian-born fathers. Okay, and I so I, I control for this when I um, do all my stuff. All right. So to give you an idea of what sex specialization looked like before the reform, this is your average Quebecois family with a kid aged one to three in 2005. All right. This is various tasks. This is the ratio of what dads do versus moms do. Okay. Dads do about half the non-market work that moms do. Um, they spend a little over half the amount of time in childcare. They spend a little less than half the amount of time than moms do in domestic work. And slowly as we go down the sample, oh, the only thing they spend more time in is maintenance and repairs, as I mentioned before. As you go down the sample, the ratios start, uh, sorry, as you go down the task, the ratios start to flip when we get to market work. So the daily minutes and paid work, the daily minutes at the workplace, annual personal income, dads all, all doing about twice as much as moms are. Um, I mean, keep in mind that this is very specific to my sample, which means it's moms with very young kids. So this is not typical of men and women sort of across Canada. This is moms with, you know, families with kids who are aged one to three years old. Okay, so sex specialization exists, definitely. All right, so these are my regression results for market production. So I actually find no main uh, effects on dad's time in market work, but I do find some interesting effects on mom's time in market work, okay? Moms spend about an hour more in paid work every day, uh, on, in, on weekdays, obviously. They spend more time physically at the workplace, so uh, off that hour, almost all of it is spent at the office. Uh, they make about $5,000, 5,000 Canadian dollars more per year than they did previously. Um, they are more likely to be full-time workers rather than part-time workers. Um, they do work more usual weekly hours. Interestingly, they work fewer weeks than they worked last year. Um, so they're more likely to be full-time workers and they work more hours per week, but they take uh, apparently more vacations. No effect on dad's time in market work. No, no statistically significant effect on dad's time in market work. In home production, very interestingly, you find effects for both moms and dads. Dads spend a lot more time in non-market work. They spend about 37 minutes more in non-market work every day. A lot of that is coming from domestic work. The time at home has increased, so the time they physically end their house has increased. Moms, interestingly, also spend more time in non-market work. They spend about 30 minutes more in non-market work. 
almost all of that is in childcare because they've actually decreased their housework. This is this is almost identical, right? So moms spend 18 minutes less mm -hmm. in housework. Dads basically do that housework more. Moms spend more time in childcare, but less time physically at home. All right. So presumably this time in childcare is being spent at the park or at playdates or wherever. Okay, so that's a, a very weird finding. We'll talk about that in a second because my ex ante expectation was that moms would uh, do more market work and just not do as much stuff at home. Okay, so childcare sharing did not improve. Moms are actually doing more childcare. Um, the good news is it's consistent with what's been found before, so that's good. Um, but the housework sharing did. So let's point that out. So dads are doing more housework, moms are doing less, which makes it important for us to look at sort of the whole breadth of responsibilities. It's not just that parental leave is more time with kids, so you end up spending more time with kids. Kind of important to look at the whole thing. Now there are a couple of different explanations for why moms uh, are spending more time in childcare afterwards. So the first is that childcare is more preferred by mothers. All right, it's just more fun to hang out with your kids than to go to, than to do dishes. Um, that is irrefutable. Sorry. Do you have kids? No, I don't. I'm just assuming. So childcare is more preferred by mothers, and they. Uh, yeah, so that's it. Maybe, maybe dads are indifferent between doing dishes and um, hanging out with their kids. The second, which is probably more likely, is that actually everyone likes hanging out with their kids more than doing dishes. Um, but moms have gained bargaining power, so now they get to put their foot down and they say, you know, you're doing the dishes, uh, I'm going to go do this fun thing. Um, and the last explanation is between housework and childcare. So you've convinced your husband to spend more time at home and do stuff around the house, but between housework and childcare, maybe you still have a comparative advantage in childcare. Um, so that could be why moms are spending more time in childcare versus housework. Yes, and it might be interesting to look at Daniel Kahneman's work on happiness, because he did some work about this. Okay. And he found that having a child makes you generally happier. Mm -hmm. but looking after them makes you less happy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, somewhere between vacuuming and loading the dishwasher. <laughs> That's great. Okay, well, definitely. Sorry. So just on the, I'm actually writing a paper right now where I show that it's. Uh, Fathers and mothers share uh, in more response. The uh, subjective well being or happiness, if you will, of both mothers and fathers. That's great. That's great. Um, okay. I don't All right. So I actually got that down faster than I was expecting. All right. So in conclusion, um, Cupid was a resounding success in what it intended to do. So it definitely got dads more involved. Um, Paternity leave is causally related to less long-run sex specialization. So that's there's sort of two things to take away from that. The first is that, interestingly, once you learn a certain type of behavior, it actually seems to stick. So we don't see the behavior reversion that I was uh, worried about at the beginning. The second is that, well, it suggests that less specialization is revealed efficient, right? Because we technically just sort of gave families the choice, uh, and they decided to reorganize themselves this way. We didn't actually force their hand in any way. So um, it's, you know, it, it seems that it's uh, actually revealed to be efficient. There's still lots of questions left to answer um, for research, if you guys are PhD, first year PhD students thinking about dissertations. Um, so the first is, uh, so there's less specialization, but are families actually better off? Are they happier, as you mentioned? Um, are they more stable? So there, there is, I just got a paper uh, for peer review that says that they are more stable, they're less likely to be, uh, they're less likely to divorce when dads take um, paternity leave. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the really important question is, are the children doing better? So what are their long-term health, behavioral, 
uh, and educational outcomes. I saw a fascinating paper um, that, that looked at, I think, I want to say hmm, Norway, showing that adolescent children are more gender egalitarian when their fathers have taken leave. So the, the girls do less sort of chores around the house and they spend more time doing sports and leisure activities and the boys help out more around the house, which is fascinating. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you were able to look at this, but were you able to look at whether it matters when the fathers take the leave in that year? Un no, unfortunately, no. Um, it doesn't. They don't ask sort of the timing of that leave. And like I said, you could actually take the leave simultaneously. Um, I don't have a lot of data on that because it's one of these optional questions that they sometimes answer, they sometimes don't. It actually seems that they do take leave simultaneously a lot of the time. I did this project in two steps. So the first is the first chapter of my decision, the second is the second. And when I first found out that they could take it simultaneously, I basically wrote off this idea that I had because I was like, well, there's not going to be any long-term effect because they're obviously taking leave and going on vacation or watching the Super Bowl or, or whatever. Um, so I think it makes it all the more surprising that if you can take leave together and it's only five weeks, apparently if you do it right, it can still have a long-term effect. So that's sort of very encouraging. I was wondering if any of your data was more disaggregated by location within the province. So in terms of like, are the people who are, the dads who are taking this leave um, more, are they more centered around like more populated urban centers or not? Because I guess that would have an implication as to whether or not this type of program could be replicated in other places. Interesting, no, unfortunately none of this data has geocodes or anything like that. Um, in, you'd be hard put to find time diary evidence that it has any geocodes just because the sample sizes are so small it would be impossible to find a cell. Um, you know, I imagine there's, I guess you could look at sort of census data. Um, at least in the US you could use CPS, like census type data and look at whether you're reporting being at work or not that week as a measure of parental leave. Um, do you have any data on same-sex couples? I do not. It's a good well, question. I think there's a, sorry, I'm sorry. There's a PhD student at Cornell who is working on something like that. So. By definition, your sample size, when you looked at male and female and married or cohabitating, you knew if they were with a man or woman? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I did narrow it down because it says um, that sex partner. I think it gets very, I didn't want to mix up the two groups because they're very different. Um, I thought I read that mm, same-sex couples that have high earnings differentials are still more egalitarian than uh, opposite-sex couples, which is not that surprising. If you're married to a man, David, the <laughs> So is one possible explanation for the women's um, increase in childcare related stuff, um, childcare management as opposed to direct care? Was there anything that they could have done? So once you're out of the house more, you have coordination costs. Um, and whether, is that a possibility that they just said, well, this because it is child care related mm -hmm. when you're trying to figure out, you know, yeah, making sure people get picked up or, it definitely could be, and um, it's probably it probably is the case um, because the extra time that they're spending with their kids is not necessarily at home. So, as part of the study, I had actually even looked at the chores that um, mm. husbands and wives do. Remember how I mentioned the time and flexible routine to mm -hmm. stuff? And very interestingly, I did actually find that the dads increased time uh, in doing stuff. A lot of it was in cooking and in shopping for groceries. Mm. So, oh, actually, not shopping for groceries, shopping. 
which encompasses all <laughs> kinds of things, including going to Wegmans to pick up a rotisserie chicken that someone else cooked, mm -hmm. but uh, it still counts as, as providing dinner. Um, so yeah, so dads are actually pitching in, not just in sort of typically male tasks. I was also thinking about why women spend more time doing childcare as opposed to yeah. so many other things they could be doing <laughs> with this extra time. And one of the thoughts I had was, was that um, there's this logical literature showing that mothers actually have this constant um, guilt, this feeling of guiltiness <coughs> of not spending enough time with their children. So, you know, if you think about childcare outside of the home, mm -hmm. that sounds like those kind of quality time, mm -hmm. you know, things like going sure. for a walk or, mm -hmm. you know, things that, that sort of leisure time activities in the sure. positive way that they might not just have to have time to do that before, but then it's also really sort of helping them with feeling guilty about not spending enough time with their kids. Definitely. I mean, another one of the possibility that had occurred to me is that remember the time diary data is you saying what you, what is your primary activity. So what's the the main thing that you say that you're doing? One other possibility is that when dads used to pitch in less at home, moms were multitasking a lot more. So they were cooking dinner while they were watching their kids. Yeah. And if in the time diary you would report that as watching dinner. Uh, <laughs> I guess you could stare at something in the microwave long enough. That's where your brain feels at the moment. Cooking dinner, right? And now that dad's making dinner, yeah. mom can say her primary activity is uh, being with the kids. So it could just be sort of a change in the um, what your primary activity is. Um, so the data on that gig that they studied between um, same-sex couples, the, the Families and Work Institute did this summer, did a, a, a survey of 220 dual other couples. And they found that they share the duties more along personal preference rather than gender. Cool. Uh, I was wondering if you checked if these young mothers and fathers had any services coming in when they were taking the leave. Some were and some were not, like uh, cleaning people or whatever, additional help. No, unfortunately, there's no sort of consumption data that I could look at that would be. Could you share with us whether you have any expectations about how this might be applied, not just in terms of the obvious, mm -hmm. right, that it's a, it's a model which shows benefit, but I'm interested in whether or not you have any plans, and if so, with specificity, um, to make sure your paper reaches policymakers. I moved to DC. <laughs> um, hopefully that's good. I think people are actually really interested in parental leave. Um, it, it's an enormously yeah. significant topic. It's an enormously topic. significant yeah. topic. I know Hillary Clinton is working on coming up with, uh, she has like a team of advisors who, has, who have been like calling up all of the researchers that are working on parental leave to get their take on things. So I really would not be surprised if parental leave is on the docket. Um, and, um, so now that you've turned the conversation in that direction, I'll just say, um, a number of us within the Women of Public Policy program are working with Clinton's team. Um, and there was just a wonderful symposium of mostly working papers on parental leave that took place by the Labor Department that I was at that was terrific last week. Mm -hmm. And then here at the Women of Public Policy program, we're hosting at 9 a.m. on September 28th a conversation about all types of sort of work and leave um, with Senator Gillibrand, who has one of the two key bills, which is um, on Capitol Hill in the United States now. Um, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro, who has been sort of a stalwart actor in this, she's from Connecticut for many, many, many years. Um, the CEO of Care.com, who focuses on this type of work, and I'll be moderating that, and it's from 9 to 10.30 
you have to sign up in advance. It is and will be oversold, and my really smart team is figuring that out. <laughs> but yeah, but it's it's really critical, and I'm beginning to ask researchers who come to present mm -hmm. that question because mm -hmm. right now we're translators for much of that, sure. and serve as the bridge mm -hmm. between the research and the policy. Right. Um, but I'm trying to learn more about how other people conceptualize it. So mm -hmm. thank you for indulging. I mean, I think with, no, 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 of course. I think what's um, well, sometimes when I talk to like people who are interested in putting this into practice. It, it feels sometimes a little frustrating because the work that I'm doing is almost like steps ahead of where the U.S. is, right? Because we don't even have good maternity leave. We are, forgive me, like almost a third world of labor laws when it comes we're, to things. We're right? the only nation in the world that has no mandatory paid leave of any kind for any worker. We have protected leave through FMLA for up to 12 weeks for workers who are in companies with 50 or more, mm -hmm. but that means half the American workforce doesn't even have entitlement of any kind to a day of unpaid leave mm -hmm. by statute. Yeah, and so sometimes it feels frustrating, but the positive, I'm a glass half full kind of person. Mm -hmm. um, the good thing about this is that when we actually start to design a good comprehensive parental leave program, we can learn all of these lessons from Europe that did it four or five different ways and sort of mm -hmm. modified it bits at a time. Like Now we know that it's hopeless to give people gender neutral shared leave and expect dads to take leave. Like We already know that. So when we're designing our parental leave program, we can just cut straight to the chase and, and you know assign individual entitlements to leave. So yeah, I guess there's a bright side. Absolutely. <laughs> Yes. I think it's also really interesting to look at the social norm aspect of it, you know, that if you give people a certain amount of time, they're going to take it. If you call it daddy leave, they're going to take it. Mm -hmm. And that's something we saw also in Germany, for example, when the introduction was for three-year leaves. The normative expectations of the, of the couple, of the family, of the friends was that women now would be able to take it because mm -hmm. there was a law that said you can take three years. Um, we really saw that behaviors changed, even though this was for the segment for the third year, very little paid mm -hmm. leave, but the expectations really were put onto women now that you have to leave, why aren't you staying at home? So it really became sort of the norm for women to stay at home. So I, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of learning um, possible for, from really thinking about what does this mean for men. and. And in Germany, the debates were then about, oh, you want to do social engineering. Now you make men stay at home. I mean, that was one of the one of the arguments conservatives were bringing mm -hmm. up and saying, you know, why does the state actually, why does the public policy really try to change people's behaviors? But in the case of, of um, parental leave, you really see it does. Mm -hmm. You can really see how, how those kind of set, how structuring the policies really makes a difference for people's behaviors. Mm -hmm. I think, I mean, norms play a critical role. I don't know if you know the paper by Gordon Dahl in the American Economic Review about uh, social stigma and peer effects. So he looks at the, you know, the introduc introduction of a daddy quota in Norway and naturally dads take more leave. But uh, the, be the most important finding is that after the quota, dads are more likely to take their leave if their brother or their coworker or their boss was exposed to the quota as opposed to not having any network that was exposed to the quota. And that's fascinating, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I may be eligible for this quota, but I'm so much more likely to take it if I have, you know, quote unquote, some kind of permission um, from a, a role model. Uh, so yeah, definitely important. Uh, 
So when we're talking about kind of the policy implications, a, a common one that's pushed back is the other economic potentially consequences. So if you increase the amount of leave overall that's being taken, our employers less likely to hire, uh, the overall productivity doesn't go down. Were you able to look at any of those, um, add that component, or was that kind of so outside scope? I, I don't know if I knew that um, in this study. My pushback against that argument would be twofold. First of all, in the US, we're talking about a couple of weeks of leave. We're really not talking about three years of leave. So, you know, whether five weeks hurts productivity to the same extent as, as three years does, probably definitely not. Um, the second question I would say is that it's really about your sort of perspective towards children, um, which is that I had, I had a demography teacher that put it perfectly once, which was that you have to make a choice whether you think of children as a private good or a public good. Um, if they're a private good, it's like a dog, and you have to pick up after your dog in the park, and so if you had a baby, it's your responsibility to figure out how you go to work and take care of your baby at the same time. But in a nation that's concerned with the well-being of the future generation of citizens, it's our collective responsibility to make sure that that child is cared for in a proper way. And we know that the child's health and development uh, and sort of social adjustment is better when you spend time with immediate family members in the first few weeks of its life. So, I, I mean, I think there's a greater sort of public health perspective towards that. Well, that's a good note to end us on. Thank you very much. Uh, I hope you all join us next week. Corinne Moss Rasmussen is going to talk about um, biases that blind us, how gender stereotypes constrain opportunities for women in STEM. So I hope you can join, for, join us for that talk as well. Thanks very much. Thank you.